everybody. Welcome back to another exciting episode. Today, zooming in, we've got Mr. Caleb Johnson, who is a rock and roll real estate investor, young guy who's doing amazing things. He's done a lot in a short period of time. In fact, he's acquired over $9 million worth of real estate before he hit the age of 25. So Caleb, great to have you on the call. Dave, thank you so much for having me. All right, man. So tell us how you got into this whole wild and wonderful world of real estate investing. What sparked that in the first place? So what sparked that for me was actually my parents. And they were not entrepreneurs, but they had W-2 jobs. And so I saw that and what that gave them in their life. And I knew I did not want that for myself. So around the age of 19 years old, my mom uh, had knee replacements. And so she was around 60 years old and being an occupational therapist, she was normally on her feet for about six hours a day, yeah, but she job. took, yeah, she took three months off of work so that she could recover uh, after the surgery. And she was going to live off of her savings during that time. So her, her, she was her company, her business wasn't able to cover her sick leave kind of thing. She was, she was on her own basically. Right. She was on her own. She had to dip into her own pocket to pay that. And at the end of three months, she thought she would be ready, but she was not, but she could not continue to, you know, afford to retire on time and continue to dip into her savings. And so she had to go back to work and I would just see her come home in tears because she was in so much pain and stress. And again, that really showed me that I did not want to rely on a job when I was, you know, 60 years old or 50 years old, because some unforeseen thing could happen to me and I couldn't control it. Right. And I also wanted to help her financially. So that was really the catalyst that sparked my real estate uh, endeavor. All right. So then you, you, you got motivation, you got a big why, not just for yourself, but to help your mom out. So what did those first steps into real estate look like? The first steps for me were free resources. You know, I know some people, they go to masterminds and courses, and I think those are great. But for me, where I was low on capital, I just went to free resources like Bigger Pockets, YouTube. And on the Bigger Pockets podcast, they talked about this thing called house hacking. And what that is, is you live in one unit, let's say of a fourplex, and you rent out the other three units. And since you're living on site, you're able to get really favorable terms on the financing. So usually three and a half percent for the down payment. And in my case, that was about $12,000. And so I was able to buy this property for $12,000 and my tenants were paying for all the expenses, the P&I, repair and maintenance, all of it. And they were actually paying me to live there. And that's what really got my, you know, my gears turning and thinking, wow, how do I replicate this? How do I buy more? How do I scale? And from there, I did that again and uh, eventually scaled into commercial apartments. Very cool. So at this point, what does your portfolio look like, Caleb? What do you, what do you plan around with these days? Uh, currently, we have one retail facility and we own another four apartments across two other states. So they range from 30 units to 16. So a little on the smaller side and we currently pursue larger properties, but that was really how I got started. So we, are you referring to the Royal We or are you working with a, a team? 
<laughs> no, yeah, we, I mean, um, myself really, but we do, I do have strategic partners. Um, I usually say we, because, you know, if, if you say we, it's generally more credible. So if I talk to someone and I say, we are doing this or we are doing that instead of I'm going to do this and I'm doing that. So that's just a, a force of habit for me. No, that's great. All right. So, okay. So you went from house hacking your first property, you got into another one kind of along the same lines. Was it also a four unit building, the, the second one, or was it? Was that the second it, one was a duplex. Was a duplex. All right. Very good. And then you decided you wanted to scale up from that into multifamily properties. How old were you at that time, Caleb? I think when I start, wanted to scale, I was 21, 22 years old. All right. Mm-hmm. Now, by that time, at the ripe old age of 21, 22, had you saved up a whole swack of cash for down payments and whatnot for, for multifamily properties? Or how did you get into that first multifamily deal? Yeah, I was not sitting on a, a bucket of cash. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> uh, I thought I would start investing by raising capital. You know, okay. for the first three years of my uh, journey of investing in real estate, I considered myself a networker. So mm-hmm. I wanted to network as many people as I could. And I thought I did actually have this large network of investors that had capital. And so I thought, you know, I'll find the deal and the money will follow. Mm-hmm. Turns out that was not the case for me. Um, I've heard that does happen with some people. And for me, you know, there, I, I've heard there are unicorns as well, but anyhow, yeah, keep going. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. <laughs> um, I haven't seen one yet, but I guess they're out there. Um, so how I got into the first deal was I sourced an off-market property. And the first one actually took me a while to, to find the partners that wanted to invest. You know, I hear a lot of people, they say, have your list of just write down your list of people that you think might want to invest. Right. You have your A's that really want to, B's, maybe C's, probably not. So I went down my whole list and no one wanted to invest. And I was already under contract. I had So, so how big how big was that deal that first multifamily that you found and got under contract? That was 16 units. 16 units. All right. So that's that's pretty big when you're going from a duplex to a 16 unit building and now you got to scramble you got it under contract. You got to scramble for the, the capital. Um, you thought you had it lined up. You, you'd heard all the, like I did many, many years ago, Caleb, but this is not a new thing. Find the deal and the money will find you was the BS that I'd heard way back when as well. So you heard that too, and mm-hmm. it didn't quite work out that way. So what happened? Did you lose that deal or did you figure out a different way to find investor partners? You know, uh, another business partner of mine who I had just worked with, he referred me to someone who was one of his passive investors. That gentleman brought another passive investor. And then we just needed one more to get the deal done. And then I did find someone in my own database that uh, we were able to cross the finish line with them. Okay. Was that a stressful experience for you? It absolutely was. <laughs> and you know, today it's, it's kind of easy to talk about it, but when you're yeah. going through that, it is uh, definitely a different feeling. Most definitely. Well, my first kick of the can with raising capital, similar situation, much smaller deal. Unfortunately, not the not a happy outcome. I scrambled around. I had uh, I had two weeks to come up with the cash. It wasn't even a heck of a lot. It was only like eighty five thousand. And I tried everything. I tried cold calling people, networking, schmoozing. I wasn't as smart as you. I hadn't I hadn't kind of lined up a bunch of prospective investors ahead of time. 
But bottom line, Caleb, yeah, I just uh, I crashed and burned, lost that deal, got some major egg on my face, and it was a painful experience I never wanted to to go through again. So that's that's when I decided, hey, this whole find the deal and the money will find you thing, that's kind of backwards. Find the money, then go looking for the deals. It's much less stressful. What, what are right. your thoughts on that? I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. And I think so much the people that have the equity uh, have a lot of the control. And you know, the golden adage is the man with all the gold, that's the golden rule is he makes all the rules. Exactly. Um, so definitely you want to have that equity. All right. Perfect, Caleb. So you kind of, you, you learned, you still managed to do that deal. What did you start doing differently from there on moving ahead when it comes to sourcing deals and sourcing capital? What, what do things look like nowadays? From there on, how we were able to scale was I sourced opportunities the same way I had sourced that 16 unit, but I brought them to another investor who already had experience in another market. So he already owned one property and that market was New Mexico. And so I started sourcing properties there and mm -hmm. building relationships with brokers. And it did take some time until we did get that one, uh, that first one done. But once we get that first one, two more followed in that uh, in New Mexico as well, but just a different market. What about the capital side of things, the investor side of things? On the capital side, he one of his partners was able to really contribute a lot of that. Okay. So it goes to show your partners are huge, right? They can really help you in areas that just aren't your strengths. Okay. So these days you're more focused on sourcing the deals and your partners are more so focused on bringing on the investors and raising the capital. Is, is that what I'm understanding? That's right. Okay. Very cool. So when it comes to sourcing deals, um, what are, you, what are you finding that works best? Because you've got the advantage and the disadvantage of being a young hotshot kind of guy, which is, which is great. You got lots of energy. You're, you're ready to go for it. You're going hard, going strong. The downside of that is when somebody sees you for the first time, they go, this kid's too young to know what the heck he's doing. Do you ever have that challenge of people? You know, I'm, I'm just thinking back way, way back in the olden days, when I was a young punk, I had it in, in business for myself. I had a challenge with people taking me seriously because I looked so young. You've mm -hmm. got that that wonder. I wish I had that youthful appearance that you have, my friend. But mm -hmm. are you have you ever found any challenges with that? Yeah, the baby face can be detrimental sometimes. Um, but I know when I'm 60, it'll be good. But it's... well, don't count it, Matt. I, I'm getting up there. The baby face went away. A long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy it while you can. Kid. All right. All right. <laughs> well, yeah. So that can hurt, but it can also, I use it as a tool uh, yeah. in the sense of I can, I can leverage that and say, I've acquired X amount of dollars before I'm this age. And so people will, uh, that's that, a kind that of makes them pay attention line. to you, right? Yeah. It that's right. Makes them perk up. Yeah. That's right. And then I always want to be professional in everything I do. And I know I'm just generally different from other 25 year olds. Uh, you know, if you just look at partying and drinking and all that. So I already act differently and I do take my job very seriously. So uh, from there, it, it's really a phone call, right? If you're sourcing a property, it's a phone call. And I had to practice that and get that script kind of dialed in 
because I did get my face kicked in when I first started calling these brokers. And mm. especially in early 2021, market was really hot and they were getting 10 calls a day. And so yeah. I was just another person that sounded really inexperienced. So that did take some time to get used to, but uh, we're definitely uh, across the other side of the bridge there. Okay. So when it comes to sourcing deals, is 100% of your effort focused on broker relations or are you finding some off-market deals as well? Well, they are the off-market properties. They do come through broker relationships. And so my strategy is all, let's say, well, the first way I started sourcing these properties was I went to LoopNet and Crexy, and I wrote down all the contact information of the brokers that were in that market. And I would call them, you know, starting out, I wanted, let's say 10 to 30 units. I said, Hey, Dave, my name's Caleb Johnson um, with Red Sea Capital Group. Do you have anything in the 10 to 30 unit range? And I would continue to follow up with them every two months. And that's how a lot of those properties got sourced mm. because a lot of these brokers, they already have relationships with people they've worked with before, right? right? Other buyers that have experience. So the way I can get a leg up, and now this happens often. So I've been doing this for two years. I can, it happens so often where I'll call someone up and they say, Hey, I just got these financials in three days ago. And so they're hot off the press, completely off market. Here you go. And so when you start having relationships like that, it can really help you uh, get ahead of the game. Okay. I might be confused. My definition of off market and what you seem to be talking about might be different things. So when, when you say off market, what do you mean by that? Off market is only three to five people. A small amount of investors have seen it and it's um, not, so, on LoopNet, not on Crexy, not on their big investor database either. Okay, so basically the 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 realtor, the broker does have the listing, so to speak. They they do have that deal. They just haven't started to promote it yet. Is is that what I'm hearing? That's right. Or they yeah. they're in the very early stage of promoting it. Got it. Got it. Got it. All right. So it's before it's hit the masses. You're getting kind of first dibs on this, but you're not necessarily. So for me, back in the day, off market meant dealing directly with the owner, skipping the broker, skipping uh, the realtor altogether. That That's to me what off-market used to mean, but okay. this makes a lot of sense as well. It hasn't started being marketed yet. Very, mm. very smart. So what I'm hearing you say then is you're Johnny on the spot. You're following up with these. You've got a list of, my God, how many, how many brokers and realtors are on your speed dial right now that you're following up with on a regular basis? Would you guess? I'd say 100 to 150, maybe wow. across two markets. Yeah. So those 100 or 125, whatever it is, brokers, you're touching base on a very systematic way every couple of months where other people aren't. The other people are just kind of, they make that first connection and then they say, they sit back and they say, hey, the realtor will get back to me when they've got a deal. You're being much more proactive about it. And that's that's been a big part of your success. Would that be fair? And, Am I summarizing that, that properly? That's right. That's right. Yeah. And from my experience, they won't send you a deal unless you've really worked with them and can yeah. prove your worth. And so for someone starting out, that was really uh, beneficial for me. And how did you kind of clue into that or what kind of sparked you to decide to, to do that kind of massive follow-up? 
Well, I didn't really know what else to do, Dave. Um, <laughs> you had some time on your ads. And yeah, I yeah. did. This was during COVID. I mean, I was at home uh, from work, working from home, and the capital raising thing did not go well. And this was the next step for me. And it kind of just developed over time. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And now it's you, you've seen the proof in the pudding. So it's just something that you do. Now, do you have that all kind of super dialed in, structured in a system where you're automatically reminding yourself to call such and such broker this day at this time kind of thing? Or is it more of a, you do it in batches? It's just part of your process. You call everybody. You spend a week or so calling everybody every couple of months. What is, what is mm -hmm. that going to look like? It's more in a batch. So I'll have a Google sheet where I have their name, their email, their phone number, and their company. And then when the last time was that I touched them. Mm -hmm. um, and then what kind of, you know, some sometimes we'll get a feeling for people that they're more of an agent uh, compared to a broker. And the difference to me is an agent is someone that sells residential real estate. A broker is someone that deals more in that 100 unit, 50 plus unit, larger apartment complexes or larger commercial properties. And so, yeah, every two months I'll go in there and I also have my markets. You know, I'll have Oklahoma or Texas or New Mexico or Arkansas. And I'll go down that list every couple months and just follow up and really just say the same script over and over. And over time, those relationships get developed and it just goes from there. No, that's great. Now, the deals that you've got that you guys have done so far, I understand that you do uh, a combination. Sometimes you do a, a co-GP type model. Other times you do joint ventures. So maybe for folks that aren't familiar with what co-GP means, could you give us a little rundown on what that looks like? and maybe compare and contrast that with how you do joint ventures. Mm -hmm. So a co-GP model, if you kind of envision a pie, there's 70%, let's say, and then the rest is 30%. Mm -hmm. So 70% goes to the limited partners, and then 30% will go to the general partners. And the general partners are really the people that are the active operators that source a deal, and, and they're the team that makes the deal happen. And then the limited partners, they get mailbox money. They get a check in the mail, or now it's a check in their, their it just goes direct deposit. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a couple different players on the GP team. You know, the role that I generally play is the asset manager and the deal finder. And some of the other team members might be a, K, a KP or a key principal. That's someone that qualifies for the loan. They have the net worth and the liquidity. And then you'll also have a lead sponsor, some people that primarily raise capital and investor relations. And depending on the size of the deal, you can have a lot more people in there, you know, in a lot more roles as well. So that can grow or that can kind of condense depending on the deal size. What does the, what does the lead sponsor mean? What does that mean for folks that aren't familiar with that? Say the lead sponsor is really the go-to person that is generally the asset manager. And so they're making sure they have the systems and processes in place and they're really running the show. So the property manager kind of goes direct to them. And, you know, it's not that he's the sole person making the decision. From what I've seen is there's maybe a weekly property management call and there's all the GP team is on this call, but the lead sponsor is kind of running the show. He's running that conversation uh, from there. Kind of the quarterback of the whole deal. That's right. 
Right. All right. And then the limited partners are basically in the investors, the passive investors. They just come on board. They put the money in. You and the other uh, co-GPs take care of the asset and you get uh, combined, you get 30% of the deal and your investors, the limited partners get 70% of that deal. Um, okay. Now, what is what does a joint venture look like for you? if you're doing a multifamily property? So a joint venture is generally um, a little bit different, but a little bit the same. Mm -hmm. So from what I've done is there will be one person, uh, the lead, let's say the one that's doing a lot of the asset management, and then there can be other people playing roles. But the big differentiator between the syndication and the joint venture is the joint venture Everyone in that joint venture needs to have some active participation. Hmm. It doesn't need to be every day or every week, but they still have a role and they can still make decisions. Whereas a syndication, the limited partners, they don't have any voting rights or, or anything like that. So uh, we see a lot of people come sometimes get into hot water with a joint venture is because people will just bring capital and they'll really be out of touch, out of mind, and they just collect a check. Um, and that can, you know, if, if an investor gets unhappy, they can go to the SEC. And if you get a complaint filed against you, it can really be burdensome to, to figure all that out and make sure you're not uh, liable. Right. So a situation where you might do a joint venture or what, what's been an example? Have you done a joint venture in a multifamily property? And, and how does that typically look? How many partners are there and who, kind of who's doing what? Mm -hmm. So I'll talk about the 16 unit and that's a joint venture. And yeah. I'm the main lead sponsor on that. And then we have three other partners. So there's four of us total. Mm -hmm. The other three partners, they did all bring capital. I brought a little bit of a, a little bit of capital. Mm -hmm. And one person, he has a lot of construction background. So we actually had a situation where there was a plumbing problem and I really brought him in and leaned on him and his expertise to figure this out. And it saved us 20 grand to have him on the team on this one plumbing uh, issue. Mm -hmm. Someone else is a master um, agent. He has been in the brokerage business for 20 years. So he's valuable to have. And then the other person, he's really good at just making some decisions and uh, being the, um, the differentiator between us all. Mm -hmm. So that's really the role. And then every, to start off the first year, we had a call every month. Yeah. Once the property got stabilized, now that call has moved to every quarter. Makes sense. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Smart, smart. And what are you planning on doing over the next year or so, Caleb? What, what are your plans? Well, this year we've seen a huge decline in transaction volume compared to last year. So we're still sourcing off-market properties, but that lull in the market has kind of given us the opportunity to dial in our systems and processes and look at other emerging markets and other asset classes. You know, we're, we're pursuing short-term rentals in Hawaii. And so that's a great tax write-off to visit your property. Um, in emerging markets like Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, and uh, looking and expanding and, and wanting to continue building relationships with brokers and sellers because we see a lot of opportunity on the horizon and we want to be prepared for those now. Very good. And what do you see being some of the challenges or hiccups kind of getting in your way moving ahead? Hmm. 
Well, I I think a big problem for us right now is sourcing opportunities. Mm, Um, Yeah. Yeah. yeah, There's a big uh, difference just where seller expectations are. They're Mm. really in 2021 land and the market's changed with interest rates. And so we're really having a hard time sourcing those. That makes a lot of sense. Now, your team right now, are you kind of tied in with with a certain group of people for doing doing deals moving ahead? Or are you more of a free agent that it's kind of depends on the deal, who you bring on as your team members? What does that kind of look like these days? Mm-hmm. I'm more of a free agent to where whenever an offering comes across my desk that does work, uh, we do have relationships with several uh uh, strategic partners that we want to work with. And so depending on the market, depending on the size of the deal, depending on how much capital we need, really depends on who we partner with. And, you know, it's really uh, just a free agent kind of style. Makes sense. Awesome, Caleb. Well, you've done some great stuff in a short period of time. I wish you the best of luck moving ahead. And if people want to connect with you and find out more about you and, and what you're up to, what would you, if, if you only had one place to send them, where would you send people to find out more about you? I would send them to today's podcast. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, After that, I would say, you know, for me, Bigger Pockets was really amazing. And they have, I think, 50 different podcasts now. No, sorry, I I, I misspoke. If people want to find out more about you, what should they do? Where should they go? Mm-hmm. If people want to learn more about me, they can visit our podcast, uh, which is called From Trial to Triumph. From Trial to Triumph. I like that title. Good name. Awesome, Caleb. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you very much for being on the show. Dave, thank you so much for having me. All right, everybody. Take care, and we'll see you on the next episode. Bye.